As Christians, we acknowledge freely and openly in song and in scripture that God is, through his Son, the King of the universe. But because he is invisible to us, the question often comes, if he is the king, then how is it that he rules? How does he exercise his authority? Well, of course, there are the angels, and they do his bidding. There is the Spirit, whom he sends to do his work. And there is his word. He governs and administrates the church through his word. And in it, we find many things that are challenging to us. This morning, we come to chapter 5 of 1 John. And we return to a summary of the statements that he has been making fundamentally and repeatedly about the nature of the fellowship of the Christian life between believers and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Trinity. You will find in this passage nothing new or very little new over what we have already said. And so as I've mentioned before in going through this book, which is highly repetitive and contains many simple, short, brief words, that we are dealing with something that's very profound. Not just the subject matter which the Lord is giving out to his people, but also the truths that underlie them. Our lives are broken by sin. And we need to hear again and again and again about not only the remedy for that sin, but then how to live for him. Because daily and weekly we turn away to ourselves and many other things compete for the attention that the Lord alone would have. As pastor preaching through this passage, this book of 1 John, I have frequently wished that he would get on with it. That he would bring more new and complicated subjects for me to bring to you. But he keeps going back. And so I have a dilemma. Either I skip over what the Bible says at this point and move on to the next new section, or I walk with you more slowly through these same words and truths again and again because I and you need to hear them. This is how he governs his church, by sending forth his word and his truth, sometimes in repeated fashion. So we come again now to 1 John chapter 5, and we are in the midst of a summary of the first sections of the book. Let us turn now to his word, 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. And this is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is God's word. May we bow together. Rule and overrule, we pray, Lord Jesus, through your word today. Submit our hearts to its echoes and its truths. 
Enable us to feast upon it and yearn for it and hunger for it day by day and change our hearts as a result. Grow us up into Christ-likeness so that we may be mature and not lacking in anything as we seek to more and more resemble our Savior. And we ask these things in his precious name. Amen. Well, by now I'm sure you can tell me the three tests that John has been applying over and over again. They come in different orders, although the first two times they came in the matter of obedience and submission. If you're really a Christian, then you will obey and submit to his word. Okay, no, no controversy there. The controversy is in actually doing it. Secondly, we are to love God and our brothers. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, the Bible teaches elsewhere, and your neighbor as yourself. And so he says here and earlier, you can't love God without loving your neighbor. And you can't love your neighbor without loving God, too. And then thirdly, theological orthodoxy, truth, faith, belief in the right things. Submitting not only to his commands, but also to the Bible's teaching. And so he begins this passage with the, first of the, the third of those. First, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. See, Christianity is based, as we've said, on solid doctrinal truth. And there are many complicated passages about which we still debate, but the solid fundamental truth, the standing or falling of it, is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Who is he? Is he fully God and fully man? Is he indeed the Son of God and the Savior of sinners, resurrected from the dead? Simple truths repeated over and over again, both in predictive prophecy and in fulfillment in the New Testament. This is the foundation of the, of the, of the gospel. And there can be no f- true fellowship with God or with one another if we don't believe in this foundational thing, which he again introduces. Everyone who believes that Jesus, the man, that is, is the Christ, the Messiah, the God-man, is born of God. Very simple, very straightforward. And everyone, now the second test, who loves the Father and loves, will love his child as well. There's just no disputing that. It is an obligation that goes to, down to essence. If we refuse to love our neighbor, then we are refusing to love God, particularly our neighbor in the church. Of course, his focus, as I've said, has been with other brethren rather than loving our enemies or loving our our neighbor. I probably misspoke earlier. Everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. So you can't love God without loving his people, and you can't love his people without loving him, which means loving God. Now the next section. Now we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. So this, in this brief passage, he's worked backwards through the three tests that normally he has given us earlier in the book in the reverse order. Here he starts with faith and belief and truth, then he goes to love, and then he goes to obeying commandments. This is love for God to obey his commandments. We cannot believe, as I say in the outline, in Jesus Christ without loving the Father and his children. 
Those who have been born of God will recognize and love him as their father and will love other brothers who were born of God as well. And we've spent more than one week talking about what that love is. It's sacrificial. It means that we are persistent in doing so. It means that we expend and extend ourselves for others. It means that we are ready to forgive when they offend us. It means that we are willing to overlook a fault in them and move on. It means so much on a practical level. But it seems that John's emphasis, in other words, he, he, he doesn't give specific illustrations of how to do this. He gives instead sort of exhortations, statements, declarations, and says, now do it. If you love God, you keep his commands. He doesn't go into how to do that. He just says, do it. If you love God, you will love his people. He doesn't say how to do that. He just says, do it. So where do we find these things? In Christ. How did he love us? That's how we love one another. How did he trust his father? That's how we trust in him. How did he obey the commands of the scriptures? Not one jot or tittle to be, to be uh, changed until all is fulfilled. Because he submitted himself over and over to the law. And so must we. So second bold print. We cannot love the Father, secondly, without also loving his children and obeying his commands. And now he introduces something that is a bit new, this overcoming the world, verse 4. This is another subject which he comes back to in his book on Revelation. And by stating it that way, I don't mean that Revelation isn't God's inspiration and these themes aren't coming from the Lord. But this is something which, again, he doesn't pause to expound upon, but will give a much fuller exposition of in the book of Revelation. His commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. We'll get to that in just a moment. But first, I want, before we get to that, I want to look again at verse 2. This is how we know that we love the children of God. Again, now, he's not focused on loving our enemies. Jesus spoke of that. The Bible speaks of that elsewhere. He's not speaking about loving our neighbor. He told the story of the Good Samaritan. We're not talking about that. We're talking about loving our brothers. Loving, this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving him and obeying him. Interesting. It's impossible to love the children of God without loving God, just as it is impossible to love God without loving his children. The loves are inseparable. We go back to chapter, 20, verse, chapter 4, verse 20, and we read these words. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Just a few verses later, he's saying it again. Because it is the core ethic of the Christian. Jesus said, they will know that you are Christians by your love. It is the one thing that we are known for. Most of all, it is our best evangelistic tool. 
Much is said about strategy and about vision and about effort and about the campaign and about working for the extension of the kingdom of God and, and well and good. But the core of it, the mark of the Christian, the emblem of the church is love for one another. And so by implication, the best evangelistic tool we have, the best way that we can show the world the reality of the gospel and of Jesus Christ is to love each other. Now, of course, love in a family includes differences of opinion and sharp debate, warm discussion. Any family that's larger than one person includes dialogue, <laughs> warm discussion, pointed opinions, conflict. Because of the fall, that cannot be avoided. And so the love that's described here, although it's, it's not spelled out here, is the implication from the, the wider context of Scripture is that love in the midst of strife Love in the midst of differences, extension and sacrifice despite past problems. That's biblical love. And that's the one thing we have. We have our buildings, we have our Bible school, we have our missions ministries. But I'm sure August would agree with me that the work at the Rift Valley Hospital is greatly diminished when the believers there can't get along. People can sense it immediately when there's conflict and strife in the midst of the medical staff or the personnel of one kind or another, and the whole mission of the hospital decreases. In the same way, you can tell when you walk into any home whether whether, whether there is strong love there in the midst of conflict. Not that there aren't differences, but you can tell. And in the same way in the church, if there is strife and schism among us, then it will be known instantly by those who who observe. So, we cannot love God without loving his people. This is how we know that we love the children of God. Turn it the other way, by loving God and carrying out his commands. One of the ways that we love each other is by doing what the Bible requires of us. Asking forgiveness when there is offense. Granting it when it is requested. The Bible's commands say that we should live holy and pure lives. It's a lot easier to love someone who is than someone who's playing in both ways and secretly disobeying the Lord. This is love for God, to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. Now this is a new concept I want to spend the rest of our time on page 11 of the outline there. Overcoming the world is now mentioned three times in this brief passage, beginning in verse 4. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. And who is it that overcomes the world? Elsewhere, the Bible calls us more than conquerors. Three times here, 
we are told that this overcoming is based on some actuality. First of all, it's based on a new birth. Whatever overcoming the world means, it means that the power to do it comes from God. This isn't a self-improvement seminar. The church isn't isn't about self-improvement seminars. It's about high and holy power being given to us from on high because we are born in Him, born again. And so whatever overcoming the world means, it is for those who have been born of God, first of all. They have a new birth. People who don't have a new birth cannot overcome the world. They are overcome by it. People who do have a new birth, if you're trusting in Christ as your Savior, and you have, He has come into your life by the Spirit and given you forgiveness of your sins, then you are in the process of overcoming the world. You have received the first step, also the second. We, then more, we are more than conquerors because of the gift of faith. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. So those without faith will not overcome the world. Those who do overcome the world do so because they are born of God and because they have faith. That's the second resource in overcoming the world. And then the third, we're the more than conquerors because of our belief particularly in Christ. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the... In other words, only he who has correct doctrinal fidelity. Only he who clings to Christ and recognizes that he's not just a spirit, but he's also man. Recognizing that he's not just God, but also man. Recognizing that he's not just man, but also God. Two in one, forever. These three things are fundamental and foundational. Whatever overcoming the world means, we have these qualifications. You must be born of God You must have faith as a gift from him in order to believe. And then you must believe not just in the trees or the sky or the creation, but you must believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So what is this victory? Well, again, he doesn't describe it. Just as in his earlier exhortations to obey his commands and love one another and love God, he doesn't tell us all that this means. So we have to extend our search a little bit. But we know what the victory is that we enjoy. We know that we have to overcome these things. And this is true, not just of us. This is true of every Christian alive today and everyone who has ever been alive. There isn't any place on this world that you can go that you will not encounter a godless and secular society. Unless you're talking about something as small as a family unit, you are going to encounter godless and secular thought of one form or another. We are somewhat familiar with the American version. If we lived in Africa, it would be different. If we lived in Asia, it would be different. But it would, it would amount to the same thing. We have an enemy that comes against us all the time. We are assaulted by a godless and secular world view. It comes at us at work, it comes at us in media and arts, it comes at us from friends and neighbors, it comes at us from all sides. This is true of every Christian. 
And whether living in a country where Christianity is illegal or living in one where it is legal like this, the godless and secular society is a huge problem. And overcoming the world can't be done apart from his power. Secondly, we know from Scripture that overcoming the world includes dealing with personal weakness and temptation. It would be nice if all of our problems were, could be blamed on other people and other schools of thought. But even if we could convince everyone else to be a Christian, we would have inner turmoil and struggle, right? We would still have to deal with the devil and temptation and sin and fear and anxiety and all the things that plague us. So this overcoming the world is an enormous undertaking certainly could not be done without faith, without being born again, and without having trust in the living Jesus Christ. Personal weakness and temptations plague us. And here's the sad part. It never ends. Until this life is over. One reason we sing about heaven, one reason we rejoice at funerals, is because this struggle will not end In retirement, when you get what you want in other ways, you will still be plagued. In your happiest moments on earth, you will still be plagued by the devil. Adam and Eve enjoyed an absolutely blissful existence. Beyond what we could have ever known since then because of the brokenness of the fall. And yet the devil came upon them. He will not leave you alone, I'm sorry to say. Personal weakness and temptation will plague you the rest of your life as a Christian. The old man, the old nature, the flesh, these things will tear at us. But greater is he who is in us, as John says, than he who is in the world. Thirdly, theological error. The church of Jesus Christ, if you pay any attention to ecclesiastical history has been under theological siege since the days of Paul. He goes to Galatia, his first missionary journey. He comes home. And then he writes this letter because he has heard that right away, theological error has broken out in their midst. He's not concerned about their drinking He's not concerned about their womanizing. He's not concerned about their drug addictions or their secular thought. He's he's concerned that the Christian gospel has been watered down and attacked. And so he says, if I or an angel or anyone else should come to you and proclaim any other gospel, then don't take it. Stick with what I gave you when I was there. And then, of course, something we mostly just read about, physical persecution. But it has been there since the beginning also, and it doesn't show any signs of going away. A Christian who lives in this world must address these four things sooner or later. Maybe your persecution has been very light. But I would be surprised if you haven't encountered some of it. And so we overcome These things. We are, as Paul writes, more than conquerors through him, through him who loved us. 
The foundation of this, the resource of this, the strength of this can only come from him. But what he does in this passage by mentioning this overcoming the world is he says it can be done. It's my own view that it's not meant to be interpreted here that only a few will overcome the world. I think he's laying out a vision for all of us. All of us will not live to the same length of time in this world. We will not all have the same degree of outward success, even spiritually speaking. But if you are a Christian and you have but a mustard seed of faith, you will see victory. You will see God answer prayer. You will see growth. You will see great things in you done by him. You will overcome the world, weak as you are, discouraged and diminished as you feel. You you may think that you compare unfavorably against every other Christian you know. But I don't see a, a, a distinction here. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. So in some way you will see victory. We hear of victory from others. We rejoice in it. We say, well, I'd like to see that happen in my life. You will, you will, you will. In some ways, you will. And you will rejoice in it because you will know that only you could have seen that. That only God could have made something of you. And those small things that you consider to be small are really very grand indeed. They are marvelous. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. Remember that today. You are more than a conqueror. I didn't say it would be easy. He doesn't say it would be a constant upward march in terms of uh, victory after victory after victory. But what he does say is you will be victorious in Christ. You will see you will see his work in your heart and life. And there's nothing more thrilling than that. Because we all know we can't do it ourselves. So in summary, and I now quote Stott in his excellent uh, commentary. Number one, Christians are God's children given new birth from above. Born again from heaven. Something's in you. If you're a Christian, that it did not come from your parents. It did not come from your teachers. It did not come from the government. It came from heaven. Secondly, God's children are loved by all who love God. It's just a fact. You can't go to church and praise the Lord and then ignore or act spitefully toward his people. Thirdly, those who love God also keep his commands. So we can't go to church and praise the Lord and ignore what he says. Fourthly, they keep his commands because they overcome the world. They are actually able, you know, isn't it amazing when someone tells the truth in this world of lies? Christians can tell the truth because they have a new birth. They have the spirit in them. They have God at work in them. And they keep his commands and they begin to overcome the world and its lies. And then finally, they overcome the world because they are Christian believers born from above. It's a circular. 
This, the whole book is, in one sense, is circular. This whole passage is circular. Notice verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the, Son of, is the Christ is born of God. Notice the last verse. Only he who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He begins, ends as he begins in this brief section. Let's take his point to heart. Let's submit to him as he rules our lives. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the simple, simple truths of the Bible. The short and profound and understandable and graspable message that John gives us again today. We're beginning to get it. We're starting to understand. The light is breaking upon our dark hearts. And we thank you. This week and in the future, Lord, change us and mold us and shape us. Enable us to see your overcoming strength and power as we live in this dark and divided world. Thank you, Lord, for your patience with us. In Jesus' name, amen.